0: Hi there, and welcome back to The Fuse Show. I'm your host, David Tran, and I'm also a co-founder of Xfusion.io. Today, I'm joined by Igor Susmili of Lightly.ai, a company that's trying to tackle novel data curation. And uh, before that, uh, Igor has worked on innovation in an innovation lab on this uh, Swiss stock exchange as a software engineer and has a background in computer vision and machine learning with several uh, successful publications. Thanks for joining us on the
1: show, Igor. Hi, David. Thanks for having me. So what led you to want to build lightly? Basically when, when moving from academia to industry, um, I faced several challenges, um, when we, when we do machine learning in academia, we have very well curated data sets, um, academic datasets, where lots of, uh, manpower has already been invested in making sure it's good for benchmarking. Mm-hmm. And basically when going to in- industry, I, I, struggled, um, building my own data sets, collecting data, and then labeling it. And um, we have to spend a lot of time. Um, kind of labeling is this task of drawing bounding boxes around objects, mm-hmm. uh, like cars or pedestrians. And when, when doing that, I, I just asked myself the question, does it even make sense to label the data I'm just looking at, or are some of the images more valuable than others? And there was nothing around there. So we decided, Hey, uh, let's, let's have a look at this problem and see whether we can solve it. Um, also for others.
0: So your idea was to use AI to define those bounding boxes. Am I hearing that right? Or to identify no, the actually, importance it's, of
1: within a data set? It's, it's it's not on the bounding box level. What we do is more on the image level. So we okay. try to help companies figure out what kind of images they should actually work with. I see. And um, when, when you talk to industry experts, we usually hear numbers of that they use 1% or less of the data they have. And when we ask them on how they pick this 1%, they would just do it randomly or they wouldn't know how to do it so they would use any method they, they find
0: <clears throat> and what is what is the mvp that you first started building with to help them narrow down the problem
1: yes so we so we built a very very rough prototype and wrapped it in a uh, we had to wrap it in a docker container and because we just thought like the customer it was a car company um, car manufacturer from germany actually a big one and we actually thought they could just quickly upload their, their data sets and we would just create it on our end. But it turned out that they were already working with almost a petabyte. And <laughs> we, we cannot just quickly upload it to our platform. So we had to wrap our solution in a Docker container, ship it to them, and uh, they were a- able to run a few experiments. And it was pretty exciting to see that, uh, that it worked very well because they didn't have anything before.
0: How did you come across this car manufacturer? Like, how did you plant the seed in their like their brains to like consider the solution?
1: Yes, so so it was basically me and my co-founder. Um, I was more focusing on the MVP back then, and he was trying to um, reach out to different companies. So he was really cold mailing them um, or texting them on LinkedIn. And I think after a few hundred messages to different people, uh, we found a few which were interested. Hmm. And uh, this this one car manufacturer then called us, even like, hey. Uh, come, to our place in Germany and let's have a talk. <laughs>
0: huh? And did you, did you like meet them in person to figure? Yes. Oh, wow.
1: Okay. <laughs> we, we literally took the car. We went over and uh, we, we met them in person and then they were super excited. So they, they, were, they were already talking about the scope of the project. And then when we, when we walked out of the, the, the meeting with them, we were not sure whether we actually closed the first deal or not. And um, it's like, you know, the, the, first couple of times it's very, un- you're not sure whether you actually did it or not, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it was it was very exciting in the end. Mm. So, when
0: you was there, a lot of paperwork you had to fill out before, like showing up, or did you just show up and get like a, a t- conversation, to, like chat one to one of their executives.
1: No, you, usually there's the we, we had to sign the NDA. Okay. Um, so, so these these things, but otherwise uh, not too much. And then, I mean, with, with all larger enterprises, you you do the the whole onboarding process, uh, you get listed as a, as a, uh, how do you call this as a distributor, essentially. And um, you go through the procurement process, IT review process now, but, but back then we were most, we were even aiming at just uh, POCs. So it was much easier for us. Hmm. What what were some of the things that you learned in the
0: process of those early conversations, not just with this uh, one car manufacturer, but like called the batch of early first 10 customers? Mm.
1: it it was a very big validation of the the problem because initially it was just a personal problem. Mm -hmm. And then we talked to lots of peers from industry and academia and the ones from academia said like, why would you waste your time even focusing on that? It's not a problem at all. We just, Mm. we just have good data sets already. And we, we we can just, we already have labels. It's not Mm. a big problem to label the data. And it was like two, three years ago, right. When, when there wasn't a, shift towards more data centric ai which is now happening so everyone was focusing on training the models having more compute power available but um back then we already thought about hey if you optimize the data a bit we can get much more return than optimizing the model and there were a few really early adopted companies and we we figured out that they already faced the problem and had to build their own kind of lightly in-house and uh, we started focusing more on these companies so once you got a chance to talk to these people and discover their need, how do you
0: know how to apply AI to reduce the the set of data that needs to be analyzed for meaningful results? Like how do you use AI to determine which one percent is the best one percent to work with
1: yes so so it's a combination of algorithms we provide uh, to the users so So for example, um, uh, we can look for the diversity within a data set, so you can look for similar images if you have lots of images which are very similar there might be not a lot of value in labeling all of them. Uh, If you have a dog and cat classifier, for example, you you wanna have diverse uh, breeds of dogs. You don't wanna have just one breed in the dataset and be kind of optimized on on algorithms to support this selection. And then there's also an input from the user, which is usually an ML engineer and who's also a domain expert. Um, The person who has a clear idea of what kind of problem they wanna tackle and what kind of um, output they would like to get by using Lightly.
0: And when you first started, how long did it take you to build the first version that had at least some, like some deliverable output that you can share with the client?
1: So I think the experiments were maybe three to six months just to, to, to get, to make sure that it actually works, the, the benchmarks. And then the whole dockerization, the first, the first prototype was maybe a month, it was a few sleepless nights uh, just trying to wrap everything and make sure it works. And and then there was continuous improvement on on the way. How did you um,
0: so once you how how did you know to do how how did you know how like to pursue this uh, path in the first place? If you knew the other companies already had so like once you heard that other companies had like their own version of Lightly in house, what made you want to like dive further versus realizing that there might be like the problem might be too wide to be solved because the set, the set of all data is a relatively I guess by definition. Very broad.
1: Yes. So, so the, the the fun thing was they had very very simple versions of likely. Okay. And um, companies would just write very simple algorithms. Like in in if you work with videos, they would just pick one frame per second instead of thirty, and and uh, use this to subsample the data. But the algorithms were not performing very well, and the, we just also know that. I mean, I'm also an engineer. Data creation is not sexy. You don't wanna do that. Actually, if you, if you talk to any ML engineer, they don't wanna spend any moment with it. So any solution making it more efficient for them mm-hmm. and taking away the pain is uh, highly appreciated. And ML engineers are still very expensive or even getting more expensive, especially in the Bay Area. So you don't wanna have these people just focusing on, on building their own uh, UI and uh, algorithms. Mm. You wanna fo- have them focusing on actually improving the models. So in terms of types of data, you mentioned images
0: before. You've also mentioned like videos now, and I guess you subsample down to images. Are you primarily working with visual data?
1: Yes. So for now, we focus on vision data, um, images, videos. You can also work with uh, LiDAR or, or any mm-hmm. other uh, 2D, 3D sensors. And um, the reason why we work with images is also on one hand, my background in computer vision. Um, on the other hand, it's also that, uh, we, we, built internally a framework for working with computer vision. Um, it uses self-supervised learning. Ma- maybe you heard about BERT or, or, mm. uh, from Google or GPT from open AI. Yeah. They also use self-supervised learning, but for NLP, like natural mm. language processing. And we built our own framework for computer vision because hmm. there was just last year, there was a pretty big breakthrough in the field and um we open sourced it and this gave us a lot of credibility in the space and we used this framework to help companies understand data before they label it and then run our algorithms on this unlabeled data to pick what to label can you
0: elaborate on what that breakthrough was
1: yes yeah, so, so in, in research basically um it started maybe 2017 18 in vision but didn't get a lot of attention because the, the models were not very good. So we, the self-supervised learning or unsupervised learning was always performing worse than supervised learning. Right. And then last year, there were very simple methods. Um, one was from actually uh, jo- Geoffrey Hinton, who was also one of the Turing Award winners, um, the Sim- SimCLR, um, which is a very simple framework for contrastive learning. And it's not only very simple to use, it also um, resulted in very high accuracy of the models. And, uh, it, it was kind of what Bert did maybe to, to, um, NLP to, to the whole field, it sparked a new, new interest. And, and now all the top AI labs are outperforming each other every other month. And, uh, we're, we're seeing that just, um, using self-supervised learning on unlabeled data can yield higher results than just using supervised learning because there's mm. so much more unlabeled data available.
0: Yeah. Sorry, did you just say contrastive learning earlier?
1: Yes, yes. What is that? It's, it's a very interesting concept actually, um, in contrastive learning, you, you take an image and then you perform augmentations on it. So for example, you change a bit the color or do random cropping. And what we do is basically we take an image and we, we create two augmentations of this one image. So you, you have maybe a picture of a dog and then you have just one part of the dog in one augmentation and the other part of the dog in, in, in the other augmentation, maybe some color changes between each other as well. And then you train the model to pick the two corresponding images out of all the images in a whole batch, which came from the same original image. So basically you try to solve this puzzle game of which okay. augmentations uh, are connected to each other. And by learning this to solve this uh, proxy task, the, the model actually learns pretty good representations. So it has to learn like, Hey, a part of a dog, um, and the other part of a dog belongs together to the concept of a dog hmm. or, 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 or similar things.
0: How much of your academic experience do you feel like was necessary to be where you are today?
1: I, I think actually in the, in the ML space, especially if you're, if you're working on, on, on these fields where, where we're active in, it's pretty important to to still be up to date with also the publications and everything. So we have weekly paper sessions. Hmm. You, you need to be able to, to read papers and process like what's going on there, even replicate and also figure out when something doesn't really make a lot of sense. Uh, one of the concepts. And I think this, this helps us a lot also to stay a bit ahead of, uh, of, of the whole field. Do you find that this this a uh,
0: constant like, game of chasing the latest and greatest in terms of research as well as general knowledge? makes it hard to hire in the AI space?
1: It for sure makes it uh, harder in the long term. I think in the short term, if you're working in a sexy field, I mean, we, we do self-supervised learning, which is getting more and more popular now every year. And we have an open source framework <laughs> that, that helps a lot. Right. Uh, and we are still very close to academia. Um, I think actually it's, it's super important to, to get these competitive people and to stay ahead. Because this field, it's maybe one of the fastest developing fields still. There's so much money flowing into research. There's so much stuff still going on. I think people are talking about, uh, the research is saturating. We don't have big, big breakthroughs, but I think in terms of what's happening in academia, it's pretty crazy. Hmm. And, um, there's, there's really a lot of resources going in there.
0: So, if someone wants to get into the AI field, what would you have them like? What would you recommend that they like study so that they can
1: be well prepared? I would actually focus on on the general um, g- general areas of math, statistics, super important. I think and and the uh, software engineering. What what I saw now recently is that there are some some people they have they really focus on this machine learning or or AI field without having knowledge of how to actually write software. Hmm. this makes it pretty complicated in the end to to run um sustainable uh, experiments and reproduce make re- reproducible code in the end what led you to start developing an interest in ai it's a it's a good question um i think after my my bachelor's i i often participated in hackathons you know mm. these coding competitions and uh, when, when i participated in one of them friends of mine started Using machine learning algorithms to to tackle the problem, and I was just very fascinated by the idea. Before that, I never heard about it, hmm. and the, basically, just this switch from I write software to I teach a machine to do certain things for me was just mind blowing. Hmm. <laughs> you know, it was one of these moments where in the in the evening when you go when you go to to sleep, you're just in the bed and you're you're like dreaming about what what you what you could do with this with with these methods with these capabilities. So. I was very blind then. I just thought you could do everything with ML. So why not use ML for everything? And um, I wanted to learn more. So I, so I focused in my master's really on uh, machine learning and computer vision. And uh, basically in the beginning, it was a bit hard to realize it's not that easy. We're not that far yet. But still, I was pretty fascinated by just by the idea and capabilities and research to action.
0: Well, that's how research works in general, right? Like, I feel like the whole the whole point of technology is there it's effectively all things that don't perfectly work yet. And uh, every, every bit of time moves the, the, the boundary a little bit further. So how exactly. did you, how, at what point did you want to take your interest in AI as a practitioner turn into a desire to build an AI company?
1: So for, for me, there was one, one kind of point of deciding between a PhD and a uh, going into industry yeah, and I saw like there, there are two, three things which made me go to industry. One was, I, I felt like going into academia and staying there, committing for four years um, on the research topic might be too hard for me because the field is evolving so quickly. Um, I, I want to be very flexible and, and look at new, new areas which are mm-hmm. interesting. And the second thing is I'm, I'm really a fan of solving problems and building products. So I, I, I just wanted to to build something helping others and also helping the whole field move forward. And I felt like going into industry and building a company in that space might be the best option. And how do you
0: find a team to start that with? Like, it's not just you, you have at least a co-founder and I'm assuming other people as well.
1: Yes. So so my, my co-founder was basically the, the only one in the beginning believing in it. Um, even my wife was very skeptical about this. field. <laughs> And, uh, even, even friends at, at tech companies were like, as, as I mentioned before, right. Usually the, the big companies had so much money, they didn't have to worry too much about yeah. that, or especially they had other teams working on, on this stuff. And, um, I was still like, Hey, we should look into that field a bit more. And then my, my, my co-founder, um, he basically, maybe he was a bit naive in the beginning, didn't know what, what is, uh, what is, what is joining, but, um, we actually figured out really just with an MVP, we were able to monetize it and uh, get get interest. And as soon as we know that that um, basically it makes sense to, to build something there, um, we were looking for a little bit of funding, and then also hired our first uh, engineers. Mm. How how difficult was that
0: process of uh, getting funding?
1: It was very difficult because we we raised a small angel or pre seed round. Just at the beginning of COVID, <laughs> timing. So, uh, so for brutal. us, it was uh, it was really brutal, but it worked out. So we were we were living for a while, even with the, the first employee, um, on a month-to-month basis, hmm. and uh, we were like every month debating on on what actions could we take to extend our our runway, but um, in in the end, uh, we, we managed to get to get a bit money, and then continue working and also close close some deals.
0: Hmm.
1: How many? How, how 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 many deals do you feel
0: like you need to close on a uh don't know yearly basis to to like help sustain growth for like ai companies in general or maybe just your your company specific is it are these like mega large deals that you only need a few of them or do you need a lot of small deals like what is the structure
1: i it's it's also really still something we're figuring out like and okay. what's the best strategy um there is this whole area of startups and especially scale ups, which also use ML and they have funding and they're moving very fast. Hmm. So closing them is much quicker than focusing on enterprise customers. Right. Um enterprise customers have a very long sales cycle, but maybe they, they give you more, more money in return. So for us, it's we're currently focusing a bit on both and because we already have an on-prem version, um, which actually not many companies in the, uh, AI field have. Hmm. But it's probably necessary, especially if you work with the, the raw data, because you, you're not going to move around petabytes of, of uh, images. So
0: what do you feel like is still on the table in terms of like work that remains to be done in the domain of
1: AI, both in, let, let's focus primarily on visual data. Like what do you feel like most hmm. companies aren't yet doing? Uh, going into production and actually have systems uh, interacting with users, I hmm. think they're just in the very early days. and. I saw some numbers that maybe 5% of the companies are actually using ML right now. And out of these 5%, most are still doing R&D. Hmm. So, and the, the the real challenges are actually not just building the first prototype, but actually going into production. Uh, for example, in autonomous driving, because the environment is constantly changing. you it's, it's not that you build the car once, you build the software once, and then it runs for the next 10 years. And we have new vehicles going on the street. I always make the, the joke that if the Tesla Cybertruck for the first time drives around, it looks so different than any other car that some some AI systems actually might get confused, right? That's true. And We yeah, need that's to true. update them yeah. and, and feed them with new data. Or as soon as we have hoverboards or, or whatever, or the cities look very different, we need to update the systems. Hmm. And I think some companies are still underestimating that. So this transition to production, and then it's, it's going more much more similar to software engineering, where you have continuous update cycles, you you, you ship new software, maybe in a weekly basis, some companies even daily. And I think we will do something similar with machine learning, where you update the model very frequently, because you have new data um, coming back. Hmm. What do you think are some of the
0: top friction points that prevent companies from having a more production ready
1: uh, workflow? So, so one of the, the challenges is um, what we're f- focusing on ourselves there's just so much data if you if you think every new car on the street would create more data and you wouldn't be able just to process all of it so we have to boil it down to what's the essential subset we actually going to use to label and then retrain our system and um, this for sure is, is one part but then there are also areas of like monitoring um, and getting this feedback loop in a live system um, how to how to react if the the robot car or whatever sensor you have, see something it has never seen before. And because the, the behavior might be very unexpected. Hmm. And the, the third area is probably going in this sort of online learning fashion. You know, we humans, we adapt on the fly. It's, it's not that someone has to teach us right. uh, to, to react to something new. And we are not doing that at all in, in machine learning. We have very static models at the moment.
0: It makes me wonder if someone's working on a startup that works on that problem, like specifically of just making data more like real time and making all the updates happen a lot more frequent.
1: Yes, yes. And I think that that's going to be pretty exciting, right? If you have evolving systems and it might sound very dangerous and people might be very skeptical, but I'm, I'm pretty sure that it will be hard to get along without something like that. Because we, we humans are also not updated all, all together once a year. <laughs> we're, we're like It'd be kind evolving. of scary if we did. <laughs> <laughs> yes, actually it would be
0: weird. <laughs> that said, maybe isn't that scary of a problem? Because I was thinking about this past year during COVID, one of the scariest things about COVID is, in my personal opinion, the misinformation. There are so many people out there that have some, um, call conspiracy theories, let's call them like, uh, false sources of information or just were misinformed or they they read some tagline on social media and they didn't like do the due diligence maybe we need to move to a world where people are uh, given a centralized source of updates
1: yes i was also joking that we should have done the vaccination more or less simultaneously across the globe (laughs) because then then you know like if you would vaccinate everyone in a very short time time period you wouldn't have the waves jumping around over the whole globe because now, I, I don't know, like one country is vaccinating, then then the virus just goes along and then the news <laughs> and so on, and it just takes takes a long time.
0: <laughs> there's a lot of countries out there who are still struggling to get the logistics done for like distribution at scale, and I think it's yeah, it makes you wonder yes. like oh, there's gonna be so many more variants. It, it's it one wasn't... of the things I love about software, right? Like you can write software, it can deploy yes. it, it generally immediately, like unless you're in a very very large team. And uh, like all of a sudden everywhere across the world, all the servers running the latest version and all the features are available. Whereas man, vaccines, even you have to like deal with all the contracts, the legal, the shipment, all the skepticism, and then you have to deal with the adoption, right? Adoption is incredibly difficult for people who have a, a predisposition against vaccines for whatever reason.
1: Exactly. I, I also feel like maybe COVID showed us how fragile are not developed oh, enough we are, because we are developed in a sense that we can, we can uh, commute, we, we have uh, planes, right? We can move very quickly from one place to the other, but this maybe more hurt us in the end than it helped us to to prevent the whole outbreak. And uh, it, w- it was just interesting, you know, like sometimes to, to to see that there's still so much ahead of us.
0: I look forward to that point, call it like five, 10, maybe even 25 years down the line where all the historians are studying this section of history and figuring like, what do we learn as a society
1: from this era? It'll be interesting to see what people put in the books yeah. and and maybe, or I hope not, but maybe people will forget about it and it will happen again. <laughs> <laughs> I hope it be <they're> so human. <laughs> the other, the other extreme
0: that we can go down is the, I joke with my friends, like, oh, we're gonna have to get one vaccine every month for each different variant all yes. the time. So like, oh, it's like it's time for the oh it's almost October in like a, like a week. So it's like it's time for our October vaccine. One month later that you get your November vaccine. It's like, oh, dang, that'd be so awful in terms of logistics. And I don't mind getting shots if I need to. But man, would it be awful if there were like 12 vaccines you had to get every year
1: for all potential different variants of every disease. Yes, yes, I, I'm all, I'm so curious, like how it would look like in, in two, three years when, when you look back, yeah will, will, will it be actually ending in two, two three years or will it just be we'll just enter another phase?
0: I think it's impossible to go back to where we used to be. For example, one of the things we talked about before the show is just the nature of remote work. One of the mm-hmm. things I mentioned was like the cost of living between different parts of the world is so significant. Like a person who is a remote employee, which arguably a lot of tech workers are, be it a product manager, a software engineer, um, et cetera, really could work from anywhere that had an internet connection and like just a laptop. And uh, it makes you really wonder like, is there is there value in staying in Silicon Valley? Is there value in being one of these like, tech hubs, probably for some, but for many, like it, it just doesn't justify the cost of moving. And there's also plenty of talent out there where people just like love their hometowns or their, like, they love their home countries and they just don't want to move, but they have the immense capacity to contribute significantly to this field.
1: Yes. I think that's, it's really interesting. I I, I had now two experiences just recently. And um, one was the, we were part of white dominator, like the, 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 the last patch. <laughs> and we also did, did fundraising um, in the end. So we had lots of calls with investors and it was all remote. It's actually worked very well. And some other founders told us um, that actually fundraising with COVID is easier because yeah. you, you can just book calls all the time. You don't have to commute from one place to the other and you're just like in a super high efficiency mode. And even investors seem to seem to like it because it's also easier for them. So so this this is like great. But the other thing I, I had is uh, last week I was at the conference about uh, autonomous driving and it was pretty cool to see actually people in person again in a, at the conference. It's also very, it felt a bit weird in the beginning because it's something, I think I've not been at the conference physically for two years now, hmm. um, but it was pretty pretty cool. You know, talk to people, have these chats between the sessions, <laughs> and just just seeing something on the, on the slide and, and you, you didn't sign up for this talk, but you just go there because it, it sounds interesting. The slide yeah. looks interesting. Let's have a look. All this spontaneous stuff. Um, I would never do. I if, if I have online conferences, I I, I really have a it's, hard time. Yeah, I tried going to an online
0: conference last year. It's kind of chaotic. Where like it's kind of a more of a like information download model versus a social model. And I mm. think a good chunk of the value in is primarily the social component, where you meet people, you bounce ideas back and forth. Whereas it's a little harder to do digitally because there's no digital equivalent to serendipity. No, I, uh, I'd love to ask you, what is your experience and why commoner like, what, what are some things you learn are some things you take away?
1: It, it was actually pretty awesome. Um, especially for us as a European company, um, it was, so first of all, the whole mindset change of, um, everything, um, thinking, thinking really big, thinking about, uh, how you can how you can build something very fast. I think uh, advice you really mm-hmm. kind of try to optimize for how can you solve a problem for a company or for a customer, and how can you how can you do this as fast as possible. So mm-hmm. they give us a lot of freedom. It was not like a full day uh, workshop every day. It was really they even told us like just focus on product and customers, and then having all these other startups in your batch just doing the same and having these exchanges all the time where everyone helps each other and yeah. we, we push each other. It was pretty pretty cool experience.
0: Could you remind me, um, you said the last batch, right? The, the spring batch, uh, uh, right? summer, summer 21. Summer, okay. sounds good. Okay. Yeah. So it's uh, been only a few months since then.
1: Yes, actually we had demo day end of August. Oh, and, okay. Uh, was also remote, <laughs>
0: but
1: One it's also these... big now 400 startups oh. oh. almost. I was gonna say one of the things I appreciate about like remote world is the fact
0: that like these demo days make it like if there's a remote demo day, which some some organizations do, it's kind of nice to be able to join from anywhere in the world without having to like book a flight ticket or having to pay for some yeah you know, sign up like fee or whatever. I actually started this podcast only like I think half a year ago during COVID, and I think one of the things that got me to start it was the fact like well I want to meet people, but I can't meet people because it's not mm-hmm. necessarily convenient or safe at the time based on what we knew to go out to, into the world and like go from like region to region, meet a bunch of entrepreneurs and like, just pick their brains. Like yeah, uh, really you're, cool. you're in Zurich, which is like at least thousands of miles away from where I'm at, like the chances we would have met in person pretty slim, but thanks for t- to COVID, it's a little more, uh, it's, it's quite accessible.
1: Yes. COVID and technology. COVID and technology.
0: <laughs> or the technology was always there. It just the COVID made the culture more acceptable to like spend time digitally.
1: Okay. Yes. How, how many Zoom calls did you have without the video turned on recently compared to before COVID? Oh,
0: shoot. Um, actually, yeah, that's a good question. I think a lot of times it was probably like two thirds to three quarters of the time I had a video. But post-COVID, it's like 97% where the only time is like
1: technical bugs or like their laptops, like their camera, like literally just broke or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I think there's these kind of things really changed and uh, we barely noticed them, but it's, it's really cool that like also now after COVID, probably we will always have the, it's not very normal to have a video call with camera turned on and everything. One
0: of the things I look forward to is now that all these older industries that haven't changed in a while are seeing a compelling reason to change. I hope there isn't another pandemic around the corner, but for a lot of companies they're realizing like, oh, we should digitize everything. So we don't need to have access. We don't have a lot heavy reliance on, physical offices and a lot of industries, like, I don't know, like industrial, commercial, healthcare, et cetera, are realizing, oh, like there's significant value in digitizing all of our experiences.
1: Yes, totally. I mean, we live basically in the cloud. So for us, there was barely a change, was just not seeing each other. But uh, we we know a bunch of companies, they didn't have any policy in place to allow people to work from home Hmm. and to have access to their data doing machine learning. And so so we had a bunch of, companies we worked with, they, they had people like for one month, not being able to work just because of these policies, because they were not fast mm. enough to adopt. Yeah. It was pretty, pretty sad. Somehow, so inefficient. <laughs> I think, yes. It's super inefficient, but they, they, they figured it out in the end. Right. Mm. But it's, that's, uh, it's, it's very corporate in the end. Yeah.
0: How do you, do you keep up with other startups that are also working on the AI space? Like, do you know how they're doing?
1: Yes. I think actually the, the space is pretty, pretty, uh, uh, Pretty really growing actually. So it, it, works pretty well and people are very open-minded to so, you know like even companies working in similar, um, on similar topics, which is exchange all the time. And hmm. um, there's this whole open source field, which is very strong in, in machine learning. I, I would, I would say it's basically this field is the strongest one built on top of machine learning, hmm. like all these frameworks, TensorFlow, Pytorch, Keras, whatever, all are open source, uh, most academic research is open source. So, so it's a, it's a very collaborative field, actually.
0: What resources do you usually go to discover all these, uh, open source tools and like the tools of your trade?
1: Uh, Twitter, Reddit and, uh, Hacker News <laughs> and, and, uh, like just recommendations from friends. Okay. Uh,
0: so I have one last question I'd like to ask you and like, what's something mm-hmm. you've been learning this past year that you wish you knew multiple years ago, either personally, or as an entrepreneur?
1: I think it's the the balance you need in life uh, between working and also um not relaxing but more like giving yourself some time to, to breathe and think hmm. and um I think there were lots of times where I was very just focused on work and uh, I forgot all lot the stuff around me and then you then you develop some weird behavior you you start being. Too much into work you start drinking even more coffee because you try to <laughs> compensate for for being tired and everything and it just continues and then you start getting more moody angry and uh, you, you meet less with people and you kind of go down this this circle and um, i think in the end it's super important to to have these not work times i i just just this month started again doing lots of sports mm. uh, finally i think after one and a half years not being able to go to the gym Hmm. and I, I just love it. It's, it's giving me, it gives me again, this freshness and, uh, um, also kind of additional motivation, right? You, you, you do something just besides work. And I know so many people, they, during COVID they had nothing. They were not meeting anyone because there was not too much to do, right? You have in the beginning, everyone was having zoom calls. We had like zoom calls with every friend, but. After a few weeks, it stopped. It's just weird to have Zoom calls with all your <laughs> friends all the time.
0: <laughs> Very okay. different cultural shift. Well, yes. thanks for your time. I, I've uh, enjoyed this conversation and uh, I just want to give you the floor now for all the people who are watching this episode, who want to follow you personally in your journey or your company's journey. What's the best way for them to do so?
1: Um, check out our open source framework. It's, uh, likely on GitHub. You can, you can start it. You can, uh, even contribute to it or follow us on Twitter. Uh, Lightly AI or or my handle uh, E Susmeli. and uh, happy happy to talk to you. If you have any questions or anything around research or what we do,
0: I'm super excited. Sounds good. Well, thanks for your time, Igor.
1: Thank you, David. It was a, it was great having having this conversation with you.